Church Dads Podcast. Join Mark Haas and Curtis Ketty as they discuss faith, family, liturgy, current events, and fatherhood. Be a part of the discussion by emailing churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here are the dads. Hello, and welcome back to Church Dads. This is the Church Dads podcast. I'm Mark Haas, and this is my co-pilot, Curtis Ketty. Hello, hey, Curtis. Hello. Happy birthday, birthday brother. Happy birthday, birthday brother. For those of you who don't know, Curtis and I have the same exact birthday. I am the elder, though. That is important to know that I am the elder. Respect your elders. Yes. Much respect, my friend. So today we um, are talking about stories and uh, stories of all shapes and sizes. And we've got a great guest coming on in the second half of the show um, dealing with a very special story that's dear to all of our, the three of our hearts anyway. One reason we're talking about stories today is because it's our birthday month, September and not only do Mark and I share a birthday in September, but there is another two uh, individuals that share a birthday in September that we fictitiously that we <clears throat> that we care a lot about, and that is Bilbo and Frodo Baggins. September twenty second. So we are discussing stories because, of course, that is a story that Mark and I love very dearly. Yes, and it would be very Hobbit-like of us to get each other gifts because not only would we be receiving them, but we would be giving gifts as the Hobbits. Yes, you know, the Hobbit culture. That's true. Is a gift-giving culture. That's true. So we would exchange gifts with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer uh, Amazon gift cards or cold hard cash. So why don't we just each give each other a twenty-dollar bill? <laughs> so. Um, so we're talking about stories, and I thought it would be interesting if we talked about, before we talked about any famous larger stories like The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings or any other story of that nature, it would be stories that maybe we tell every day to our own kids because this is a, this is a parenting show in a way, church dads. So I um, <laughs> thought it would be interesting to reflect upon what, what stories are you, Curtis, utilizing in your daily fathering <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. As the kids get older, the stories have evolved. And I could say that, you know, for both of my boys, one is five, one is three, they uh, have always preferred stories that I make up, like, out of my own head, um, rather than, like, books that I read them out loud. From the very beginning, all of my kids have longed to hear stories. They didn't even know what a story was, but they... Ella is one year old, and her favorite thing is to grab any random book off the shelf, and then she assumes the position. She, like, walks over and, like, backs up (laughs) into me so that, like, I'll pick her up, and she just wants to sit there and have me turn the pages and talk to her and tell the story. It's, like, built into her, like, DNA to hear the story, and I think that's significant that our kids want to hear stories um, at all. Like, why do they want to hear stories, you know? Why do we listen? Why do we listen to stories, Mark? Why are we so interested in storytelling? That's a great question. I think we're all innately natured to like this tribal mentality. So, like when when Julian 
uh, we might be watching something or maybe it's something in the story. He'll immediately point to a character and be like, daddy, is that, is that a good guy or is that a bad guy? Hmm. You know, so maybe it's like a monster looking thing, but there's good, there could be good monsters, I guess. They're trying to figure things out. mm -hmm. Yeah. They're trying to like, they want to know what's coming, right? They want to know if that guy's menacing or whatever. You know, I once heard someone say that the reason they read books is to know they're not alone. Like, when you read a book, when you read a story, you're searching for that moment where you go, ah, it's not just me. You know, someone else has felt that way. Someone else is experiencing that. And that shines light on your own experiences. And you suddenly feel like you're a part of something greater. That you're not just... Um, you're not an aberration, that you're, you're not just floating through the universe without purpose, but you're actually a part of something that, you know, you're, you have been understood by this author and you understand the author. And it's almost like they're, they're reaching out a hand out of the book and they're holding your hand. And, you know, so reading, although it seems like so isolated, like you're off on, on yourself reading, is actually a real communal experience of relationship. Which is why the Bible, of course, is in a whole nother stratosphere, because who are you communing with when you read Scripture but the creator of the universe itself, you know, who is who's actually literally telling you, you are not alone, you are not a mistake, I named you from the foundation of the earth, and, you know, I have sought you out, and I long for you to be with me again, and here is the way, like, man... You know, that there is truth. That is good. That is evil. That's the bad guy. That's the good guy. I, I long for that. I remember the first story I ever told. And uh, to my son, anyway. And it was a really, really late night. We were out. We were in Southern California. So I think it was like a really late Disney night. You know, like the day-long Disneyland trips. Oh, yeah. So it was really late. And, of course, most kids have like a bedtime ritual. And you've got to stick to the the rhythm of the ritual, yes. you know. And so, you know, we got home, but it was so late. We weren't going to be able to do, like, a little snack or, like, uh, the little show, 15-minute show or whatever before bed because it was, just, like, way too late. So, of course, this, this uh, triggers a meltdown. Can't have my show. Can't do this. He's, like, two at this point. So I carry him in, and he's sobbing, and I turn the light off in his room, and I start rocking him, try to get him to bed. And I said, well, look, we can't watch the show, but I could tell you the story of it. So instead of watching at the time, I think the fad was Beauty and the Beast. And um, so instead of watching Beauty and the Beast, I just told him the the cramp, crammed down version of it, ah. and he was like, he, he quieted down immediately like he was amazed it was like the, it was almost like the first story he'd ever heard. Like he, he's sitting there visualizing it as I'm telling it. And so ever since then, every night um, we do stories, and I can relate to you. It's always got to be a made-up story, um, and I'm running out of them quickly. But. Well, that's the beauty, though, because they don't know the stories that are out there. So yeah, using that, stories that are already out there and then telling them as though they're made up. Like I must admit. I have told the story of Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, as though it was my own story. And um, when William has asked for more, I say, "Well, there is a movie," but he refuses to watch it right now because he's afraid of Darth Vader. 
But when I do tell the story, I, I tell pretty much the whole thing, but I never reveal who Darth Vader actually is. Like, that will remain a secret until he finally watches it for himself. So, sure. Yeah. Good. And you made a good point. Um, I'm running out of stories, and one day I was just like, wait a minute. The Bible's chock full of the greatest stories. I mean, I'm just going to start drawing from those. So, of course, like one of their favorite stories, you may have even seen the reenactment video of this on Facebook, Curtis, with the kids reenacting Jesus on the boat yes. <clears throat> and, you know, calms the storm. That's like one of their favorites. And uh, simple, easy, effective. But, of course, the common objection to telling Bible stories to your young children is that they can be violent and terrifying. <laughs> and, you know, like there's a little bit of scandal associated with Bible stories at times. So, you know, are should we be telling these stories to our kids? That's a question. What do you think, Mark? See, what I thought you were going to say is that telling children Bible stories, I think too often as, as um, people grow up to be adults, those stories kind of remain children's stories in the psyche, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and I don't want to speak for people, but I think for a lot of adults, maybe, um, in the back of their mind, these stories are just children's stories. It's almost like you convince your mind that they're just children's stories. Maybe they didn't even happen. They're not just children's stories. We Because the, fir- the first time we see them is pretty pictures and, oh, what a nice book. And sanitized, books, right? sanitized. Mm-hmm. No, I think there's a real danger in telling Bible stories in the same breath as you tell the story of Beauty and the Beast or Star Wars, as though it's just like another fairy tale. Um, because yeah, because then you also fall into the the trap of interpreting the stories in the same way that you would interpret something like Beauty and the Beast, where David and Goliath just becomes a morality tale about having courage and facing the fear that is personified in this giant, and you lose the whole aspect of the story actually being about God. So, you know, one thing that we've tried to do is we do tell some stories at night, um, Bible stories, but actually we've sort of shifted away from that. And every morning we have like a little morning prayer time. And as part of the morning prayer is when we talk about the Bible stories or, you know, as we're getting ready to go to mass, we talk about what the gospel is going to be. And so we really try to put it in a different category altogether. What do you think about that? I like that. I like that. And there's one uh, church dad, if we could call him that, I think he would like to be called a church dad. Uh, he's deceased now, rest his soul. But J.R.R. Tolkien is who we were going to get to in uh, the next segment. And this is a dad who knew his compass of storytelling, of what we were just talking about, of dividing uh, Bible stories with fairy tale stories. Right, to reflect the, the deepest truth. Um, so, you know, how do you, how do you communicate the truths of this world with all of the darkness and the joy and the sorrow of our just our regular life, he takes them and he kind of like brings them up to a new height. All good stuff. When we come back, we are going to talk more about stories and how stories exist in our church and how one author, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, utilizes stories to um, reach our hearts on a deeper level. So stick with us. This is Church Dads. Join the show discussion. Email the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Follow the dads at facebook.com slash 
Church Dads Podcast. Be a part of a revolution to empower the Christian family. This is the Church Dads Podcast. Welcome back to Church Dads. We've been talking about stories, specifically stories in our own homes and telling our kids stories. And, um, you know, there's been greater fathers than the two of us currently telling stories <laughs> through the history of time. Yes. And uh, one of the great fathers of the 20th century was J.R.R. Tolkien, who is a professor of languages and um, a genius storyteller in his own right. And it's not like he was a famous novelist. He wrote this, well, he wrote several books, but many of them pertain to this one world of Middle Earth that he created over decades of his life. But it all began with the process of storytelling to his own little children right? as they were whistling off to sleep. Right. He struggled the same way we struggled and um, sitting down and trying to, to figure out, you know, something to tell his kids. They wanted made-up stories. And so he would tell these stories, um, and of course they took place in this um, world that he'd created. Well, really, he created the language first, and then he needed a people to speak the language, and then he needed a world for that, that people to live in. And so basically Middle Earth was just our world, but just far, far into the past. And so he's creating kid stories, and he would do it just like us. But his kids started to notice like inconsistencies. And there's this really great quote that was in the preface for the 50th anniversary version of The Hobbit um, from Christopher Tolkien, one of his sons. And uh, he said this. um, He's speaking of his father, Christopher speaking of his father. He says, My dad also remembered that I, then between four and five years old, was greatly concerned with petty consistency as the story unfolded and that on one occasion I interrupted Last time you said Bilbo's front door was blue, and you said Thorin had a gold tassel on his hood, but you've just said that Bilbo's front door was green, and the tassel on Thorin's hood was silver. At which point my father muttered, Damn the boy, and then strode across the room to his desk to make a note, the first note of many that eventually became The Hobbit, and when the sequel to The Hobbit was desired, that grew and grew and grew into this epic, The Lord of the Rings, which is the greatest selling fiction book of all time. Can you imagine his thought process? Like, if I can't convince a four-year-old, you know, <laughs> I'm really going to have to work out the storytelling thing. You know? So what Tolkien did was he looked at the story of all stories, and he came upon a, an incredible realization which is, could it be, could it be that we only find stories good because they resemble the story, the story of our own humanity, the story of the universe, and which finds its center in the God who created us all actually becoming one of us, taking on flesh and, and weakness, and then suffering and death in order to set us free, to, in order to open the way back to God, whom we were made for. Like, could this story of stories, this true story, actually be hardwired into the human heart? That we all knew this story, like, from the beginning. 
And that every story that we love, the reason we respond to it is because it reminds us of this great story where it seemed that all was lost, that we knew humanity knows that we're broken, that there's no hope, that we cannot save ourselves, and that we're, we're doomed. And then just at the moment where all seems the most hopeless, that something turns and we are saved and, you know, joy and happiness and freedom become possible again against all odds— Tolkien looked at that and said, that is the story, and every good story reflects it. And that, especially that moment where there's the turn. And so Tolkien looked at the English language as a linguist and said, there's no good word for this. So he actually created a word. And so he took the word catastrophe, which meant a sudden turn from good to bad, or like a sudden disaster. And he added the prefix you, which meant good, and said, you catastrophe, like a good catastrophe, like where everything is bad and it can't get any worse. And then suddenly there's the turn. Now he came up with the word, but the concept was already there from in every story that we've ever loved. And this is really fun to like look in particular at our favorite form of modern storytelling, which is film and television. You know, you look at the great films and televisions out there and you see the you catastrophes all over the place. So it's like, name a good movie, name your favorite movie, and I'll show you where the you catastrophe is, says Tolkien. And uh, that, that for me, when I first learned about the you catastrophe, it just, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. Yeah, I remember, I remember when you were doing this discussion at your church and you were sharing it with me. It is mind-blowing, and he was on to something. And so I remember texting back or something. I was like, well, you... You, I wonder if he pulls this from Eucharist. And so sure enough, he texts me back, oh my gosh, it comes from the Greek. Yes. Of course. Yes. So Eucharist, starting with the E-U-C, um, Eucharist, meaning um, something good, we're giving, meaning to give thanks, the Eucharist. Right. It's like in Apollo 13 when they think the astronauts are dead and they're coming back into Earth and they don't know where they are and they're out of radio signal. And it's just like, ugh, this drudge of five minutes or whatever. That's right. And then you hear the scratch of the radio and Tom Hanks says, whatever he says, I know, we're back, back to and Earth. And they'll throw their Houston, papers no up more. in the air. Oh, it's they throw their papers up in the air trope. And then it's, or it's like Star Wars. There's that first Star Wars movie, or um, Return of the Jedi. Let's go to Return of the Jedi where Luke is about to defeat Darth Vader, but then he tosses his lightsaber aside, leaving himself totally defenseless as the Emperor begins to electrocute him to death. And, like, there's just no hope. And then suddenly you see Darth Vader, like, make a turn, and he picks up the Emperor and tosses him down the shaft, sacrificing himself in the process. And there's this this moment where you find it that Luke was right. Luke was right. There was good in him. And at least for me, I mean, there's lots of flaws in Star Wars, but I mean, that's a, a true you catastrophe moment where you just, you know, you have this joy. It's like, wow, everything turns suddenly when it seems horrible. So the you catastrophe that Tolkien coined the term, he's basically saying that, yeah, all of, all of, all of the good stories anyway are just a reflection of the story that's written on our hearts. It kind of reminds me of like a sea turtle. They, you know, they give birth to hundreds of follow me here. Yeah, I'm, so, you know, a sea turtle is born okay. and there's hundreds of them and only a few really make it to the water because they're very... Uh, vulnerable. 
per, yeah, it's vulnerable to predators and these kind of yeah. things. Well, the sea turtle makes it to the water and swims away. And, you know, how long do sea turtles live? A long time, some of them. And so they'll go all, you know, they'll go halfway around the world. And when they're, when they're approaching death, they will swim back to their very beach that they were born. And so that just re reminded me of when you were saying that we all have, perhaps have this, it's like this moral compass to, to we're restless until um, the story is complete, until we rest with God. Absolutely. I mean, we have to really think about it. We have to go deeper always. You know, why do we create? Why do we tell stories at all? Where does this impulse come from? And why do we tell the stories that we do? Why do we think thoughts? Why do we, like, consider, like, our purpose in the universe? Like, why, why, why? we got to go deeper. You know, there's a great quote um, of St. Gregory of Nyssa, which I want to read, which speaks about our own nature, our own brokenness. And he says this, Sick, our nature demanded to be healed. Fallen, to be raised up dead to rise again. We had lost the possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners, help. Slaves, a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy a state? Now, I love this because it speaks about our own brokenness as a source of some glimmer of hope. It's like we know we're sick, and so we cry out for healing. We know we're captive, so we cry out for a savior. There's this, there's this silver lining in our darkness. It's like we know that this was not meant to be. We know that we're broken, and so we cry out for a healer. And... That was like in our very hearts. So even before there was any hope, like any concrete idea that God was going to come to save us, before any of that, the stories we told reflected the brokenness and the longing for healing. And I think that's why we love those stories. Like I said before, it helps us know we're not alone. It helps us to see the world the way it's meant to be seen. And, you know, we tell these stories. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien talked about the great myth, and the myth sort of transcended our lives and spoke to these great hopes and joys. But then what happened, what, the, what no one could have anticipated was that the God of the universe came into history and made that myth a reality. Like it be, the myth became true. It actually took place in our own world. Everything we'd ever longed for actually happened. And now we live in this incredible time where we look back on history, this man who lived in Palestine in the first century under the procurator Pontius Pilate, like in a certain time and place, like eternity punctured into our time and changed everything. And that is, that is Christianity. It's not some lofty abstract idea. It's we talk about God entering history into our time, taking on our flesh. That is incredible. We have this incarnational historical faith, the true myth. The true myth has become history, our story. Woo! You always know how to end segments on <laughs> such, such a pious note. Oh, oh. Good stuff. And now we get to talk to someone about, you know, this great story, The Lord of the Rings. 
Who are we talking to, Mark? Yeah. Do we have to wait to find out? We... No, no. Well, yeah, yeah, all right. We'll keep it a okay. secret if you can hang on with us for a few Just more a seconds. a few more seconds, you'll find out. That's right. And it's good. It's good because this individual has read the story... Uh, well, you need more than fingers and toes to count. We'll just put it that <laughs> <laughs> So this is Church Dads. Thanks for hanging with us. When we come back, we're going to talk more specifically about Lord of the Rings and Christianity, Catholicism, the whole bit. So stick with us. This is Church Dads. Like what you hear? Have a question concerning family, fatherhood, or faith? Email the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Be a part of the discussion as we seek to strengthen our Christian witness in the home. This is the Church Dads Podcast. Welcome back to Church Dads. We have a special guest with us, very special, especially out of the Ketty family. Ketty Part 2. We have CJ Ketty, brother of Curtis Ketty. And, uh, wow! Yeah, hey. And you're yes, coming, tuning in all the way from Sweden. What's up, CJ? Yes. CJ. Uh, yeah, uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I am a loyal listener to both episodes so far. <laughs> Um, no, yeah, it's good. It's really nice here. It's not too cold yet. It hasn't snowed yet. And, uh, and everybody, this is going to sound like a cliche, but everybody to a person has been extremely nice, like almost too nice. Like we feel like soon they're going to like cook us and eat us. That's how nice they're being. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I know enough, but maybe the listeners don't. What are you doing in Sweden? Who are you? Why would we ever want you to be on this show? Uh, well, the first half of my life lines up pretty closely with Curtis. I, I grew up all over the world, so in, mainly in, in Hong Kong. My parents were missionaries. Um, came back to Canada. Uh, lived what was looking to be a pretty pointless life. Um, and then I, I was training in new employees at a bank and, and thought, I, I don't like anything about what I'm doing except for the teaching part. So I decided to go back to university in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, and uh, did better than I did the first time, and then um, went and taught for a while in Hong Kong again and really liked that. And then um, some friends who were living in Sweden invited us to apply here, and then, you know, the rest is history. We, we arrived a few weeks ago, and we're about to start uh, proper school teaching stuff in two days time so i'm very excited good and you are a teacher um of primary school so what age range are we students age range i'll be teaching uh seven eight and nine so 13 to 16 mm. yeah it's a bit different here than it is in, in north america but good and this is a church dads of course so you are a church dad um uh, Came into the Catholic Church how many years ago? Uh, in 2015 um, was our confirmation. And I started seriously thinking about being a Catholic in, uh, I can remember the exact date, November 18th, 2013. 
was the day wow. I decided to wow. become a Catholic. Yeah. Exactly. Why, why that date? Um, well, I guess it's a, it's a long story uh, that, you know, is probably too long for this episode. But Oh, go for it. We'll just edit it out <laughs> and make it, make it perfect. No, I, was, uh, I had just come to Hong Kong. We just found out that we were pregnant. And by we, I mean my wife. Um, yeah, after we found out we were pregnant, I, was, uh, I had this, this sort of crisis of conscience. And it felt like I was looking back on my life. And all I could see was the mistakes and the failures. And I just felt like, what kind of a dad am I going to be? What kind of a person am I going to be? I had gotten very close earlier in the year to just not doing church at all or the church thing or the Christian thing. Allie and I both felt that way. We had left all of our family and friends behind and why not start a new situation and why, who are we pretending for? And let's just, let's just leave this whole thing behind. And then in that moment of, of conscience, um, I just, I kind of had a breakdown in the good way, just very emotional moment. And I just thought, I'm going to really try to give this thing a real shot, like to really try. You know, most people just like me, when I grew up in a, in a faith, you just take what your parents give you and then you don't think about it. And I thought, I'm going to really apply it. And if it's if it's real, um, it'll have life. And if it's not, then, you know, it won't. And uh, And so... I went to the RCA courses. We did the long, the long one um, because I wanted to ask a lot of questions. I think I was like the only person they've ever had in that program who actually cared about what they were talking about because I asked so many questions. Um, and then we we got confirmed, and then uh, we've been, yeah, we've been on the journey together. And and I really do feel like um, like a you know like a Christian for the first time. I, I don't know what I was before. Um, but uh, I feel like now I'm actually trying to be a disciple and trying to Fantastic. follow Jesus' teachings. Fantastic. RCIA, for those who may not know, stands for the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adults. And it is for... That's right! It is for inquiring, Sorry. not just for people who are committed to becoming Catholic, but inquiring people as well. So if you, anyone might be interested, check out your local RCIA program. And they come in many shapes and sizes, so you do a little research and find one you like and... Um, there's a lot of great ones out there. That's what Curtis does for hey. part of his living. Good. So That's today right. is an exciting day. It's like Lord of the Rings Tolkien Day. And CJ, Curtis tells me you're like a bigger geek at this than even the two of us are. And so combined. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to measure geekness. Um, I feel like geek up it applies or implies that uh that you kind of like, you know, like Curtis is with Star Trek. You kind of like are too far down the rabbit hole to be reached. <laughs> I think for me, it's just a book I love a lot and I read it a lot and I know probably too much about it because of that. And the movies. But I don't dress you know, up. I don't dress up in costumes and go to conventions uh, or something. I'm sorry. I have pictures of you in costume. <laughs> what did you dress up as? Who were you? Faramir? I was, you? I was Faramir, but like in context, yes. it was a movie marathon watching all three extended editions back oh, okay. when, so back it was when just, they came out. It was just a movie marathon watching all the extended editions. Yeah, so it was only context. like 14 hours of my life where yeah, we watched context. movies and I dressed up as Faramir. Yeah, but I wouldn't I wouldn't like line up to, to meet a cast member or something unless it was Andy Serkis. <laughs> I would li- I'd line up to meet him. 
he's he's like one of my heroes. But um, otherwise, you know, I'm just a I'm just a guy who I, I think I would be the same kind of Lord of the Rings fan if I lived in 1970 as I as I would be in now. You know, the internet. I'm not like a, I don't have a message board handle. I'm not. Well, that's not totally true, but I don't sorry, use it sorry, every day. What's your what's your what's your Twitter handle? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, hey, I'm I am ready to go. Let's do this. And for those not, we don't record video, so I'm, I'm holding up the book. I just want people to hear how weighty this is. Ah. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Would you like to be alone with the book, Mark? No. So <clears throat> the, the reason we're talking, of course, we're talking about Tolkien today and Lord of the Rings. It's because we're talking about stories and telling stories to our children. So I guess my first question to you, Siege, would be why do you love the story of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit so much? I think I was thinking about this, and the, the it's actually a really easy answer. It's the first real book I ever read. Um, I remember my like our dad, you know, he, he read The Hobbit to us. I don't remember him reading it, but I know he did. And I know we watched the cartoon a million times, the 70s cartoon, which is still, like, excellent, in my opinion. And uh, The greatest adventure... Yeah. Um, and I don't think I even read The Hobbit myself before I read Lord of the Rings. I, I remember very vividly laying in the... I, I was notorious in 11th grade in high school for going to the library on my spare lessons and finding an empty couch in the back and just sleeping. And uh, and I, like I would be found there sleeping many times. And one time, I remember waking up in the library uh, and looking sort of, you know, through the bleary, bleary eyes... And seeing Lord of the Rings on the shelf and thinking about dad loved Lord of the Rings. You know, he, he talked about Lord of the Rings. And I remember just the idea of Lord of the Rings. I remember dad explained that, you know, the Lord of the Rings is actually like the bad guy. It's, it's Sauron. It's like in, there was something scary about the title, something ominous. And I remember opening it and reading that opening poem. Um, you know, the very famous uh, One Ring to Rule of All, One Ring to Find Them poem. And and it was chilling to me, like and that, and I just remember like, okay, well I got to read this, and it was a three volume, very battered edition. So I, I took Fellowship, and I read it, and uh, I was I didn't read books really back then, and I really got into it. Like it wasn't slow to me. It is a kind of a slow start, but it, it didn't feel that way. And I remember just flying through uh, the Fellowship and Two Towers, and then I got to Hong Kong for a visit from Canada at Christmas and I was just finishing two towers. And I remember saying to dad, like, you know, spot if we can do spoilers, I'm assuming we can, you know, uh, Frodo's uh, taken Sam's locked out of the tower after this epic Shelob battle. And I remember saying to, to dad, like, you know, it, what's going on? Like, is everything going to be like, what, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything. Is everything going to be okay? I didn't know anything was, you know, and he was very, you know, he's, he wasn't going to give anything away. He was like, you know, you gotta, and I remember even the first time reading it, even the, the mouth of Sauron holding up the coat and the, the sword, I totally bought it. Like I was like, you know, they've got him, they've got everybody like, you know, so all the you catastrophes in that book, the first time through, they really smashed home in a big emotional way. So, like, not only was it the first real book I read, but it it totally found its audience in me. Like, I was like, I was right there for every turn. Uh, and so, I don't think I've ever read a book since 
that I've loved that much. And it makes me cry every time I read it. I literally read it once a year. I've read it probably 30 times. And uh, I cry every time, and it's always in a different part. I just finished it three weeks ago, and this time it was when Eowyn sees, or Eomir sees his sister on the battlefield and didn't know that she was there and and thinks she's dead. And the whole of the Rohirrim are, like, singing, but this now their, their song is, like, they're chanting death. And it's like I just I just like I tear up, you know, just thinking about it. It's it's amazing. So so what is it about the story in particular that you think, you know, it's you said you it found its audience in you. What was it? What was it that you love so much? I think it's honestly, I think it's Sam, the character of Sam. Um we he he is the hero. I mean, it's debatable who the hero of Lord of the Rings is. There's many debates about it. Some people even say Gollum, which I, I love that argument. But I think the character of Sam, if you read it, and like I said, I just finished it again three weeks ago, the the very slow transition that Tolkien makes from making the hero from Frodo to Sam, like, is is beautiful. And the first time I read that, I just thought, here's a, here's a character who cries at the drop of a hat. You know, he's he's very simple, simple language. Um, and by the end of the book, he is literally carrying the 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 main character, the protagonist. And you know, one of the parts that really gets me emotional is when he they're on the steps of Kirithungal and he's talking about stories and like, do you think we'll ever be in a story? And uh, Frodo does the like, you know, don't forget about Sam. And Sam's like, you know, don't make fun. Like that whole part is just it kills me because the heart of that character and how much love he feels. That I think is what makes that book special. So to me, why why it's such a great story and why it found its audience is like I feel like I'm not heroic. I'm very cowardly. You know, I don't. I wouldn't know what to do with a sword or anything. But I can relate to the feeling of like deep loyalty, like not wanting to leave someone, uh, wanting to do everything I can, you know, for someone else. Uh, and I feel like that is so identifiable. It's so applicable, like Tolkien's word. Like he wanted Lord of the Rings to have applicability. Um, and that's like, so anybody could read that story and find themselves in it. And I feel like that character, Sam's character is unique. I can't think of a single novel or movie or story where the hero is so small. And Sam is that incarnate. In the book, Lord of the Rings, he never once thinks of himself. It's like everything is about Frodo. So when you get that moment where don't forget about Sam. You know, we have to talk about Sam the story. Sam hasn't even it hasn't even occurred to Sam yeah. that he would be in the story. Everything is about Frodo. He is laying his whole life down for Frodo, which is why I can no longer watch the Return of the King movie. It just it makes me angry yeah. when Frodo tells Sam to go home in that movie and Sam actually goes home. It's like it's like somebody just took a spray can and just vandalized the Mona Lisa, yeah. like it's absolutely opposite to what that story is about. It's but. hard to talk about the the movies when we talk about Lord of the Rings because they have such little to do with one another in a lot of ways. I mean, I I appreciate them as movies and I watch them a lot because they kind of scratch some itch for me. But um, they're not they're you we can't. I almost feel like what what you're doing now and talking about the movies almost feels like as much of an abomination as that scene you're describing <laughs> because like we were having, we we're having a very serious conversation about Lord of the Rings. And then you start talking about the movies and it's like, Oh, you know, you're right. The movies are, you're right. they are, they are what they are. 
and there's good there. And a lot of people, that's how they ex- access these stories. And so for that, I'm like, you know, that's great. Um, but um, in a lot of ways, that's also bad because now they're never going to read the books. And so when they think of Sam, they think of Sean Astin, who did as good of a job as he could with what he was given. But like, that's not the character that I'm talking about when I talk about Sam. Curtis, any favorite excerpts yeah. from the book? You know, I think I don't read it as much as CJ does. But if anyone ever asks me, I think the th- the first thing that comes to mind is that moment where Sam has realized his mistake. Yeah, Kirith Ungal, like he thought Frodo was dead, and he was willing to go on alone. And but then he turns back and he sees the orcs taking the body of Frodo, and he's like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna fight them all. I'm not gonna let them take." And he still thinks Frodo is dead. But then as he follows him, he realizes that Frodo is alive and he's made this horrible mistake by abandoning Frodo. And so then when he goes into the tower and he's searching for Frodo and he can't find him and he feels like all is lost and he collapses and begins to sing. You know, that that song from the Shire, which does not belong in Mordor at all, but this one little ray of light and Frodo hears it and that's how... Yeah, Frodo's that's how they voice find each other in the darkness. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that Amazing. that might be my my most favorite moment in the entire book. Definitely, the single work that is Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my favorite spot is when they're uh, Sam and Frodo are, um, you know, they're hungry, they're tired. Um, this is just before um, Mount Doom, and. Uh, Skies are clouded over. Sam can't sleep, and he's, you know, he's just worn out. And he looks up at the sky, and there's a little hole in the clouds, and he can see the one star twinkle. And for that one second, he just knows that this is just temporary, and beyond this is uh, goodness. And uh, it, it lets him go to sleep, you know, without a word, without a care in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's like you know, not a coincidence that that all three of our favorite moments involve Sam because he is just the best. Uh, um, but th- when you said the twentieth anniversary, that is my my actual story. Like this fall will be twenty years since I was in eleventh grade in that library in Hamilton uh, at Saltfleet reading Lord of the Rings. I think it was in the end of September in two thousand in nineteen ninety eight when I first picked up that book. So twenty years, crazy. What a journey. Good. Now, this is church dads, and so we are of a church, um, and most <laughs> most of the topics we talk about have to do with Catholicism, so I don't know. It might be appropriate to... There's just so many great Catholic tie-ins with Middle Earth and the whole story. Um, I thought it might be fun to visit some of them. I don't know. So some of the explicitly Catholic references yes. in Lord of the sure. Rings. Yeah, and you know, it when I first read it in CJ2, like we were as far away from being Catholic as, as possible. So I was already in love with Lord of the Rings, and then when I started to read J.R. Tolkien's letters, um, that's when I realized, wait a second. And then you go back and you look at something that you're so familiar with, and you suddenly see Catholic imagery everywhere it was really quite a stunning experience. wait 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 so the, the second time you go back to read it or did you did you all did you two pick up on I, any of this the first time you read it or no no no, no not, at not at all and i'd read it multiple times like i remember i 
realized I needed to become Catholic. Um, it was late November of 2004. And uh, I didn't realize how Catholic Lord of the Rings was probably until like a year after that. Like, I knew that Tolkien was Catholic, and I was really impressed with his Catholicism and his faith, but I didn't realize how much of it he'd put in the Lord of the Rings. And it was it was later that I found out. So, yeah, um, Mark, you're you're about to teach a class on this. So why don't you uh, give us an example of something super Catholic in Lord of the Rings? Well, I would probably have to go to the most Catholic thing about Catholicism, which is the Mass and the Eucharist and partaking of the Eucharist at Mass and or for those who are disposed to receive it. And so, of course, Sam and Frodo, they're desperate, they're hungry, they're starving, they have nothing. Um, their death is like on the next doorstep. And of course, the only thing sustaining them is this little white wafer bread, this elvish lambus bread, which... Uh, and Lembus and Elvish actually means life bread. So literally, the hobbits are being <laughs> bread of life. The, the hobbits are being sustained by the bread of life. Kind of interesting. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely like what you were talking about. What you were asking before, and like I never, even today, have read Lord of the Rings and thought, "Oh, that reminds me of Catholicism." But when I was in the RCIA for those two years, there were so many things that they talked about that made me think, oh man, that reminds me of Lord of the Rings. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Way. So for me, it's always been like, I can, I feel like there's, you know, <laughs> obviously it's not that way, but I feel like there's so many echoes of Lord of the Rings and Catholicism because he was so explicitly like, you know, he was the, you guys are pretty nerdy Catholics, but he was like the ultimate nerdy Catholic. So I think like he, it was like he said in his letters, it would be impossible for him to tell a story that, didn't implicitly uh, talk about his Catholic faith. And it was only as he got to the end that he decided to make it like explicitly Catholic. Because uh, he started to see, I think, some of those things that he didn't even see when he was writing it and then so said, okay, well, I'm going to turn that up to 11, you know. Um, I could see that. I could see that. And Frodo, you know, he finds himself woken up and he's talking to Gandalf and he's like, what What day is it? You know, like, what's going on? And Curtis, Curtis, what day does he bring up? The ring was destroyed on March 25th. March 25th, people. Now, March 25th is significant because the Church Fathers, and, okay, I'm going to go even further back than the Church Fathers. The ancient, like, Jewish people taught that the creation of the world was March 25th. Like, that's when the world was created. So it was like a holy day in their calendar. It was sort of... That is why Passover was celebrated around that date. You know, that was the beginning of the year, March 25th. So when the church fathers looked at Christ's life, they said, when was he born? When did God enter the world? When would, does he conceive? They said, well, it must have been March 25th. And this is sort of like a pious, you know, hope. But they're like, it would be the perfect date because this is the date of creation. Here's the date that new creation really began. The eternal broke into the now. It was March 25th that he was conceived in the womb of Mary when she said yes. And so nine months later, what's the date? December 25th. That's how Christmas Day was calculated, was based off March 25th. So then they also said, okay, if, if he was conceived on March 25th and he lived a perfect life, he's the ultimate human being. That means that he died 
on March 25th. And so they believe that the first Good Friday was March 25th when Christ died on the cross, saving us all. And so here's Tolkien writing his story. And when does he choose to have the ring destroyed? March 25th. It's for liturgy geeks and Tolkien geeks. But when you get to that part in the story, it's like you want to like jump up and down and whoop and holler and look out the window and be like, hey, I have something to tell you and realize there's no one (laughs) out there who would care. And you don't care now, most likely. But there it is. He chose that date because of its incredible significance. Noon? Noon, said Sam, trying to calculate. Noon of what day? The 14th of the new year, said Gandalf. Or, if you like, the 8th day of April in Shire Reckoning. But in Gondor, the new year will always now begin upon the 25th of March, when Sauron fell and when you were brought out of the fire to the king. Oh, man. So, oh, CJ, man. you're right. Just can't get it's almost better. like Tolkien committed to this, really, at almost at the end of the story. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to put it there plain as day. Oh, man. When you were free from the fire and brought to the king. I mean, yep. come on. That's on page 952 oh. out of 1,000. You know, so it's like psh, right there. Yeah. And think of the calculations that Tolkien would have had to make to make sure that they got to Mount Doom and destroyed the ring. On March 25th. Like, I mean, and this is not a... Tolkien was not, like, go in and make a few edits. No, no, guy. no. It's like when he had an idea, he would just start the whole book over again. <laughs> he would just start writing from the beginning. Yep. And speaking of dates, um, this show is airing in September. And so we all have uh, to celebrate not just Frodo's birthday, but Frodo and Bilbo's birthday. And Curtis's birthday. And Mark's birthday, which is the same day as my birthday, wow. just like Bilbo and Frodo. That's right. September 9th. Yep. And Bo- I, I, one of my favorite characters is Boromir, who, if you try to compare him to an apostle, you might immediately jump to Judas. But I, I like to think of him as St. Peter. Because of Peter betrays Christ. Judas betrays Christ. They both betray him. But Peter seeks reconciliation. And so, to me, this is the confession in the book, is when Boromir dies. And there's three parts to it. They almost hit all of them in the movie, too. And he says, Aragorn, I tried to steal the ring from Frodo. So he confesses by the mouth. Then he says, but I'm sorry. So he has sorrow of heart. And then he says, but I killed as many orcs as I could so that Frodo and Sam could get away. So it's almost as if he offers a penance. And then Aragorn, it's almost like he blesses him before, well, he does. He, like, gives him a blessing before he dies. It's almost as if he absolves him from his sins. So it's like, why? So confessing and to a priest, perhaps. And I mean, that's that's another great character in the books that we didn't really talk about, but it's such a great character. And I think that's that's one of the few redeeming qualities of the movies. I think that they nailed that character in the movies. Um, they didn't, it was one of the things that I think really overlapped with, with what they, their vision of the story and Sean Bean is so great in it. Um, that, that plot of that, first of all, that first movie is, is great. I think the, the trilogy is not great as, as movies, but that fellowship of the ring is, is pretty close to a perfect movie. It's that really, really good good movie my favorite yeah so i think that you know that's a very a very 
Catholic and uh, and Christian idea, that character and his 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 arc. And I like that the movie didn't shy away from it. They didn't try to make more of it than there was or less of it than there was. I, I think that they really, they followed it through and it was great. I really liked it. Every time that scene happens where Aragorn gives him a little kiss on the forehead and in the forest glade and the colors and the, and you know, I will not let the white city fall and that whole part. It's just, it's great. That's a great part of the movie. Another great, uh, uh, Catholic Christian, you know, it's hard to, to say like it's Catholic because I mean, when I say Catholic, I mean Christian. I mean historically Christian. A uh, great Christian I- idea in the book is that Tolkien doesn't just choose one character to represent Christ, but he chooses three characters to represent uh, to represent Christ. So Mark seems very excited. You want to? No, wanna, no, keep going. Want to talk keep about going, this, my man? Okay. So of course. Mary, Pippin, and Gimli. No. <laughs> no. Uh, because we have the three offices of the Messiah. You know, he is prophet, priest, and king. And when we are baptized and anointed um, with the oil of sacred chrism at our confirmation, you know, we are anointed prophets, priests, and king. We share in that, um, that, that priestly, that prophetic, and that royal... Um, vocation of Christ, because we're united to him. So Tolkien, in his story, he actually has three characters who sum up those three offices, and each of them is a Christ figure in the book. So you have the prophet, who is, of course, Gandalf, you know, the messenger. He's literally an angel, you know, in the world of Arda or whatever, Middle Earth, and he is that prophetic office of Christ. He's come to to encourage, to kindle in the hearts of the faithful, the fires love, you know, with this ring of fire, big spoiler alert. And then, you know, you have the priest who is Frodo, you know, who is, who is bringing, you know, himself to, he's climbing the mountain to lay down his life for the salvation of all of Middle Earth and priests, you know, offer up a sacrifice. And in this case, not just the sacrifice of the ring of power, but of his very life, mm-hmm. his life. And he his, his, and they uh, all have a death, person. and he dies. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Sorry, that's right. He dies. And then Aragorn, of course, is the king. Um, that's obvious. He's a king re- returning to his throne. And actually, in the book, the steward of Gondor represents the papacy, which is really interesting. You know, the papacy are basically stewards waiting for the, the king to return. And, you know, we've had some bad stewards. And actually, in the, in the Bible, um, Christ, and in the, also in the book of Revelation, we find out that at the end, you know, we're not going to have a, a, a run of great stewards. Let me just put it that way. Like, it's not going to, it's going to be a very dark day, and most of the faithful will fall away. And at the moment where all seems lost, the king will return, just like CJ's favorite moment there in the Pelliner Fields. Anyway... Mark brings up a great point. They all have the death. Gandalf dies, but then it returns as the white, Gandalf the white. Um, Frodo seems to die there on Mordor, but is saved by the eagles. Um, And then Aragorn actually literally crosses through the underworld, you know, and he also experiences a type of death, you know, where he goes through the, what do you call it? The the land of the dead? What what is it called in the 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 book, CJ? Paths the the paths of the dead. The yeah, paths of that the dead. one. Yeah. It's hard to say which one's most Christ-like, but that one, looking at Scripture, it gets pretty close. 
because um, I jumped to Ephesians chapter 4, and it says, Christ, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. And so referencing the limbers of the fathers. And so this is like, he did it. It was like Aragorn, boom, there he was. And so and that's right. And he helps them fulfill the oath, you know, that they, they had they were oath breakers yeah. and he helps them fulfill the oath. So that comes from I think it's a second Peter where Peter references the fact that Christ went to pri- went to prison to preach to those souls who um, were killed in the flood in the in the flood. And I think, you know, wow. This is really mysterious and interesting. Mm-hmm. But probably too much for this show, but another echo too of the death and rebirth of Aragorn is the is the tree, the white tree, of course, which is dead. And then you know Gandalf shows him the the sapling um, on the mountains, and and that's sort of his his sign that you know now he really can have that that throne. So I think the idea of the sort of wandering in the wilderness and then and then coming into your own kingdom is very obviously very Christ like. And don't forget that Aragorn himself comes from two bloodlines. So in a way, he is he's has two natures. You know, he has that elf side and that human side coming together in the person of Aragorn. Mm-hmm. So it is like it's like a dim, shadowy echo of the what we like to call the hypostatic union. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We can all get our Google out. All right. All right. Yeah, that's right. Yes. The dual natures of Christ. All right, so that's pretty good discussion, and we could go all day with this because, as you could tell, the three of us are passionate about oh, Tolkien and all things um, Christianity. So we'll just end it there, the three church dads today, and uh, happy to have you, CJ. Thank you again. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can just email us at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your uh, questions, comments. We really do want to engage with you. Um, and we look forward to hearing from you. And CJ, why don't you take us away? Okay, this has been Church Dads. Go home and love your families. Church Dads is a regular podcast hosted by Mark Hawes and Curtis Ketty. Join the discussion by emailing the dads at churchdadspodcast at gmail.com. And follow them on Facebook, facebook.com slash churchdadspodcast. Want to change the world? Go home and love your family.